El futuro tiene nada más que la confrontación. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. I used to write a bunch of weekly columns for a bunch of internet places, and I would use those columns to put forth all sorts of crazy opinions. Then, I would come on this show to defend those opinions. But now, I do nothing ever at all. Joining me today, he is one of my favorite people in all of Los Angeles, possibly in all of the country, definitely in all of the world. One of my favorite comedians, my favorite podcast host, my favorite cook. I love him so much. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm obviously talking about myself. Also joining me, he is a fantastic comedian who you can hear on this show all the damn time. He's fucking smart, he's handsome, he smells good, got a bunch of cool hats, lots of cool sunglasses. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm still talking about myself. It's going to be a great show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Joining me as co-host today, ooh, my favorite co-host of all. No co-host. But on the bright side, I am joined by a room full of my absolute favorite guests of all. No guests. That's right. Unprecedented solo episode of Unpopular Opinion. At least I think it's unprecedented. I've never done one of these by myself, right? You people would know better than I do. But I did have a solo podcast for a while called In Broad Daylight, and I do solo episodes of the Conspiracy Podcast all the time. So don't worry, you're in capable hands today. I guess the reason I'm going it alone today is kind of symbolic. If you recall, back in 2015 and 2016, I made a whole big scary deal about how an impending Trump presidency was a thing we should very much worry about. And let me tell you, that was a cold and lonely road to be on at that point in history. People absolutely could not get enough of telling me how silly I was being by worrying about that shit. And hey, guess what? I'm right back here in 2022 to say essentially the same thing. We should be very worried about Donald Trump becoming our next president. I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but we should. I don't think we're back to where we were in 2015 when saying you think Trump might win an election would get you muted on Facebook or whatever we were doing to shun people back then. But I do think there is a growing perception that his influence is waning a little bit. I read an article while I was researching this where Mary Trump, his niece who wrote a fabulous book about him, mentions that there was some lower turnout at rallies he held with Bill O'Reilly and things of the like, and that maybe that meant his influence over the Republican Party was lessening just a little bit. And it may very well be. But the problem is Trump and his team are putting together a plan that ends with it not mattering that much if he wins or loses the actual election. I mean, it definitely matters. There will be consequences either way. It's just that we'll have less of a fight on our hands if he wins. And I should clarify, I don't give a fuck if him losing means we have a fight on our hands. 
He should lose, not just the presidency. He should lose everything in life. But still, the fact remains that Trump and his allies are gearing up for a huge confrontation if he runs in 2024 and doesn't win. I mean, think how close we came to an actual violent overthrow of the government on January 6th. I think the most underreported detail of that whole ordeal is the buses. As the rioters made their way deeper and deeper into the Capitol, a plan was formed to evacuate elected officials to a safe location via bus. And it was actually a Republican senator from Alaska, Dan Sullivan, who convinced everyone else to not get on those buses. And yes, if you dig into that guy's entire record, there's plenty to not like. But he also has military experience and knew that in a situation like that, if you get on those buses, you don't come back to the Capitol. You're essentially surrendering the building to the rioters. And from there, who the hell knows what happens. Also, Mike Pence, who is a terrible, terrible person, no doubt, also did the right thing on January 6th by refusing to get into a car with Secret Service agents. He was concerned the sight of him leaving would vindicate the rioters. And he's absolutely correct. It also seems like he just maybe didn't trust the Secret Service in that moment. This all comes up in a 2021 book by Washington Post journalist Carol Leonig and Philip Rucker called I Alone Can Fix It. Donald J. Trump's catastrophic final year. According to their account, Pence repeatedly refused attempts by the head of his Secret Service detail, Tim Giebel's, to get him to evacuate. But at one point, those requests turned more into orders, and Pence and his family were taken to an underground parking garage where Pence's armored limousine was waiting. And at that point, Pence once again refused to leave, telling Tim Giebel's, I'm not getting in the car, Tim. I trust you, Tim, but you're not driving the car. If I get in that vehicle, you guys are taking off. I'm not getting in that car, end quote. And if Pence gets in that car and the rest of the people in charge of certifying the election results get on those buses, January 6th could have been an entirely different thing. And it's starting to feel like that was all just a test run for an actual violent overthrow of the government in 2024. If needed, I doubt they'll contest the election and storm the Capitol over it if Trump wins. But if he loses... Oh man, buckle up. It's not like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers are going away anytime soon. And they also might end up being the least of our worries. As pointed out in a recent Newsweek article, those two groups are still a concern, but the way bigger threat comes from average, everyday Americans who own a shit ton of guns. 17 million Americans bought approximately 40 million guns in 2020 alone. By the end of 2021, that same group added around 20 million new guns to their respective arsenals. Here's a quote from Newsweek. If historical trends hold, the buyers will be overwhelmingly white, Republican, and Southern or rural. And as misfortune would have it, gun ownership and believing the American government is tyrannical and needs to be overthrown often go hand in hand. Here's a quote from Adam Winkler, UCLA law professor and an expert on gun policy and constitutional law, speaking to Newsweek. The idea that people would take up arms against an American election has gone from completely far-fetched 
to something we have to start planning for and preparing for. End quote. In that same article, a court case that I had not heard about comes up. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. At the time of the article, the Supreme Court had not yet ruled in the case, but they since have, and they ruled in favor of gun owners. Essentially, the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin case established an unrestricted right to carry a gun anywhere in the country. There were a few state laws in the books that stated that you can be banned from carrying a firearm, even if the Constitution doesn't technically say you can't carry a firearm there. It's more complicated than that, but what's important to know is that the gun owners won, which is bad times given this quote also from Adam Winkler in that same Newsweek article. The Supreme Court may be close to issuing the ruling that leads to the overthrow of the U.S. government, end quote. Because here's the thing, if violence does break out at the nation's capital, and probably lots of state capitals, it's going to come down to the military to stop it. And that will amount to the military firing on their own citizens, which historically is a widely frowned upon thing to do. So if the military decides not to intervene, it's mostly just going to come down to which side has more guns. And we don't even need to ask which side that is, do we? But also... We might not even need to wait for Trump to lose an election for MAGA land to lose their collective shit in a try to take over the government by force kind of way. Because not sure if you heard, but the FBI just raided Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida. It's not 100% clear what they were after, at least as I record this. I'm sure that will have changed by the time this goes up. But it sure as shit wasn't luxury accommodations for an upcoming event. According to most suggestions... It seems like this is all related to that incident a few weeks ago where the National Archives ordered Trump to turn over a bunch of classified documents that he had taken to Mar-a-Lago after leaving office. Apparently, someone close to Big Orange tipped the FBI off about him maybe not having turned over all of the documents. And that's why this raid happened. The FBI took approximately 12 more boxes of documents including some that were apparently taken from Trump's safe. What's in those documents is anyone's guess. So far, it just seems like minor stuff. Honestly, nuclear secrets, compromising information about the president of France, just the basics. Regarding this tip coming from someone close to Trump, his own former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, told CNN that there would maybe be a group of six to eight people who would be close enough to Trump to even be able to give the FBI that kind of information. In other words, we got a rat on our hands. He also added this, quote, I didn't even know there was a safe at Mar-a-Lago, and I was the chief of staff for 15 months. End quote. For what it's worth, there isn't a specific enforcement action that can be taken when the Presidential Records Act is violated, which is very much what Trump did by not turning over documents to the National Archives. But legal experts who spoke to Reuters said there are laws that prohibit taking classified documents to unauthorized locations or the unauthorized possession of national defense information. And those laws could be used against Trump. There's also a federal statute that prohibits removing or destroying government property. Section 2071 of Title 18 of the United States Code, it carries a punishment of a fine and up to three years in prison. And that's not 
a life sentence or anything, but also that statute stipulates that anyone convicted under it shall be disqualified from holding public office. That prospect has a lot of anti-Trump types really excited about the idea that the end result of this Mar-a-Lago raid will be that Trump can't run for president again. And don't get your hopes up too high if you're one of those people. That federal statute flies right in the damn face of what the Constitution says about running for president, which is that you just have to be 35 years old, a natural-born citizen, and a resident of the U.S. for at least 14 years. So at the very best, a conviction here would eventually put the matter in front of a highly conservative Supreme Court that isn't likely to side with a federal statute over the Constitution. And if they do, once again, we still have those wily Trump supporters to contend with. The Atlantic put together an extensive summary of the right-wing reaction to news of the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, and it is not great. For starters, the phrase civil war was trending on Twitter shortly after news of the raid came down. Here are just a handful of posts and quotes from the Atlantic article, which you should definitely read. Here goes. Fuck a civil war. Give them a revolution. We outnumber all of them 10 to 1. Next quote, it certainly feels like they're treating it as a hot civil war. When this is all said and done, the people responsible for these tyrannical actions need to be hanged. There was also a headline from Gateway Pundit, which is a right-wing outlet that just says, this means war. Or there's former Trump advisor Michael Caputo, quote, with this militant raid on President Trump's home, we have become Russia. FBI is the KGB. From Dinesh D'Souza, quote, the FBI, an organization set up to fight organized crime, has become the most powerful organized crime syndicate in the world. We now need to carry the fight against organized crime to its logical conclusion. Shut down the FBI and prosecute this gang of dangerous criminals, end quote. Newt Gingrich, we'd be better off to think of these people as wolves who want to eat you, wolves who want to dominate. Marjorie Taylor Greene, this is the rogue behavior of communist countries, not the United States of America. These are the type of things that happen in countries during civil war, end quote. And just like that, the side that campaigns partly on a platform of Democrats want to abolish the police have now become the abolish the FBI party. The same FBI that I'm assuming a lot of Trump types were hoping would track down and punish that leftist cabal of child sex traffickers out there harvesting adrenochrome so Disney can keep making Marvel movies. I guess the Trump supporters will just have to carry out those arrests and trials on their own now. Nothing scary about that idea. But let's say Trump survives all of this legal jeopardy intact enough to lawfully run for president in 2024. What happens if he loses? Do you think he'll concede quietly? Did he concede quietly last time? Definitely not. And as we speak all around the country, Trump supporters who continue to amplify the message that Democrats stole the 2020 election have been winning primaries left and right. Of all the states that challenged the results, none challenged it harder than Arizona. And Trump-loving election deniers are now officially one election away from overseeing that state's election process in 2024. Carrie Lake, who's running for governor, and Mark Fincham, 
is running for Secretary of State. Those two offices have more sway over elections than any other. And Lake and Fincham have both made Trump's false claims about fraud in the 2020 election the centerpiece of their respective campaigns. And guess what? They both won their respective primaries. So on the bright side, we finally have a reason to care about the Arizona gubernatorial and secretary of state races this year for a change. That'll be different. Downside, of course, is that we need to pay attention to those elections because the future of American democracy might be at risk depending on the outcome. Oh, and a pro-Trump election denier named Blake Masters, a protege of Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, won the Republican nomination for U.S. Senate. And that's just in Arizona. In Michigan, a House Republican named Peter Meyer, who voted to impeach Trump after the Capitol riot, got primaried by a former Trump administration official named John Gibbs, who ran on a platform of, I like Trump the best, and he won Handily. The weirdest example happened in Missouri. That's where Attorney General Eric Schmidt won the GOP nomination for U.S. Senate. And Schmidt had previously backed a Texas-led lawsuit to overturn 2020 election results in four states. And he was probably endorsed by Trump? The day before the primary, Trump took to Truth Social, his own social media platform, to announce that he'd be announcing what candidate he was endorsing in the Missouri race sometime that day. Eventually, he issued that endorsement, telling the people of Missouri to vote for Eric. The only problem is both candidates are named Eric. Eric Schmidt and Eric Greitens. Sounds like a classic Trump fuck-up, but it was more like a campaign-planned and executed troll move. After going back and forth all day on who to endorse, a campaign staffer suggested the Vote for Eric post. And after confirming that both of their names were spelled the same, according to the Washington Post, Trump took more than 50 calls in meetings about it before deciding to go ahead with the post. And here's what that post said. I trust the great people of Missouri on this one to make up their own minds. I am therefore proud to announce that Eric has my complete and total endorsement. End quote. But there's also probably more to it than trolling. While Eric Schmidt did back that Texas lawsuit, he isn't nearly the MAGA warrior Eric Greitens is. So it makes more sense that the endorsement would be for Greitens. But the thing about Eric Greitens is that he resigned as governor of Missouri in 2018 after allegations that he blindfolded and bound his mistress and took nude photos of her and then threatened to release those photos to the public if she ever told anyone about their affair. After that allegation came out, his ex-wife came forward and claimed he at one point knocked her to the ground once and also physically abused their children. So the indecision when it came to issuing that endorsement probably had a lot more to do with Trump's staff trying to talk him out of endorsing a possible child-abusing sex criminal. And it seems like they only halfway succeeded? And this seems like a relatively minor incident, but the Washington Post article about it is long and detailed, and wild as shit. I'll link to it in the show notes. Of course, at least for now, we do still have laws in place that would theoretically stop state election officials from truly stealing their state's results for a losing candidate. But all of those manners and means of preventing it depend on things like the judges who decide the inevitable court cases not also being MAGA chuds themselves. That's where things fell apart with the 2020 election fraud claims for Trump. His campaign lost more than 60 lawsuits across the country, 
including some decided by judges Trump himself had appointed. So maybe that'll hold up in 2024 and beyond. But also this fall, the Supreme Court will be reviewing a case that, if successful, would clear the way for state legislatures and state legislatures alone to decide how to allocate their election results without state courts or even a state's constitution having any say over it. It's called the Independent State Legislature Doctrine, and conservatives have been pushing for it for two decades. And now, as if by magic, the same Supreme Court that overturned Roe v. Wade has decided Independent State Legislature Doctrine is also an issue worth talking about this fall. So stay tuned for that. Oh, hey, hello, hi, this is Adam, co-host of the podcast you're listening to right now. Just dropping in to let you know that I'll be doing a live episode of the universally adored Unpopular Opinion podcast this month in New York City, August 28th at Caveat NYC, 4 p.m. start time. You'll be home in plenty of time to rest up for work the next day. I'll be joined on the pod by Alex Schmidt four-time Jeopardy champ and host of the Secretly Incredibly Fascinating podcast, Sliceberg Slim, my co-host on an Unpops podcast called Pod 6, and a music producer who makes the theme songs for a bunch of pods on the network, and comedian Khalees Hawkins, a fantastic comic who writes for every television show you watch. Tickets are just $15 in advance or $20 at the door, so get them early. And hey, if you can't make it to New York, you can still watch the show. Live stream tickets are available for just $10. In-person and live stream tickets both are available at unpops.co slash NYC or at the Caveat NYC website, which, fittingly enough, is caveat.nyc. Or just go look at our pinned tweet at Unpops. And hey, we'll see you there. Thanks. We love you. Let's get back to the show. So now, let's fast forward a few imaginary years to 2024. Let's say, be it through legal election means or chaos and bloodshed, Trump is our president once again. What's a second-term Trump presidency going to look like? Well, just like in 2016, all the information you need to answer that question is readily available on the internet. Just let Trump tell you himself. I think the best source so far is his recent speech given at the America First Policy Institute. I planned to include a bunch of information regarding what that group is all about, but doesn't the name kind of say it all? I'll link to video of the entire speech if you want to watch it for yourself for some reason. But also, I'm going to run you through the highlights if you want to call them that. So watching the entire thing isn't really necessary. Trump's team billed this as a policy speech And I would agree that it is as close as Trump is capable of coming to delivering a policy speech, but it's still just barely one of those. I'll tell you right off the bat that the most enjoyable part of the video is the first 12 minutes when Sarah Huckabee Sanders is speaking. What's so great about that part? There's absolutely no audio. It's just complete silence while Sarah Huckabee Sanders stands there and flaps her stupid mouth around a bunch. We're also air quotes treated to a speech from Linda McMahon, who, as it turns out, chairs the board of the America First Policy Institute. 
Same Linda McMahon that is married to WWE sleazeball Vince McMahon. After that, there's a fireside chat with Kevin McCarthy and Newt Gingrich that I really enjoyed forwarding through without listening to a single goddamn word. Those hoes chop it up for about 30 minutes, and then here comes the Trump, to paraphrase George Harrison. And it doesn't take long for things to get genuinely alarming. He kicks things off by talking about crime. And sure, he's not lying when he says crime rates are up. And it's not at all surprising that his remedy for it is more police with less oversight. And of course, he wants to bring back stop and frisk. Nothing to put your jaw on the floor over there. But then he trots out this classic. Let's listen. Again, I don't want to make this partisan, but every city, every single city is run by Democrats. Every single city where it's in trouble, like the kind of trouble we're talking. It's run by Democrats and the crazy policies that they put forth. That's a really popular Republican claim these days. Democrat-controlled governments and their soft-on-crime leftist policies are the sole reason why crime rates are so high. The problem with that claim is that it's not true. In April 2022, a center-left think tank called Third Way released a study about actual violent crime rates in areas controlled by Democrats versus those controlled by Republicans. The study found that murder rates in the 25 states Trump won in 2022 are 40% higher overall than in states Biden won. The five states with the highest per capita murder rates, Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, Alabama, and Missouri, all lean Republican and voted for Trump. If you go by what party the governor of each state is affiliated with, though, it's pretty much the same result. A lot of this has to do with murder rates generally being higher in the South and the South just generally voting Republican. But beyond that, the biggest increase in murder rates in 2020 happened in the Great Plains and the Midwest. The largest jumps were in Wyoming with 91.7%, South Dakota at 69%, nice, Wisconsin, at 63.2%, Nebraska at 59.1%, and Minnesota at 58.1%. Of those five states, only Wisconsin and Minnesota voted for Biden. And in the case of one of them, it's only depending on who you ask. The point is, Trump's claim about Democrat-controlled governments equaling more crime is bullshit. And if you want to point out that the Republican claims of Democrat control equaling crime relates more to large cities as opposed to entire states, well, then I would counter by asking you which bustling metropolis Wyoming, South Dakota, or Nebraska have to blame for cracking the top five in highest violent crime increases in 2020. But Trump isn't even sort of done talking about crime. After promising to, quote, go into the drug dens, end quote, with a no-holds-barred campaign to break up street gangs, he then launches an off-script rant about MS-13, because you see, that's what he means when he says Democrat-controlled areas have higher crime rates. It's not about crime, it's about immigration. If you peel away enough layers of what he's saying, you'll eventually get to all of this just being about crime specifically committed by immigrants. And then things start getting really scary. Here's another clip. We're a war zone. To lead this effort, a joint Violent Crime Task Force composed of the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security should be tasked with destroying these organizations 
and the penalties should be very, very severe. If you look at countries throughout the world, the ones that don't have a drug problem are those that institute a very quick trial death penalty sentence for drug dealers. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? But you know what? That's the ones that don't have any problem. It doesn't take 15 years in court. It goes quickly, and you absolutely, you execute a drug dealer, and you'll save 500 lives because they kill, on average, 500 people. It's terrible to say, but you take a look at every country in this world that doesn't have a problem with drugs, they have a very strong death penalty for the people that sell drugs. If we're going to stop this scourge, So on the bright side, at least the applause seemed kind of reluctant and unenthusiastic there. On the dark side, that was Trump calling for the United States to treat drug crimes the way the Philippines or China deals with them. Call me crazy, but I feel like that should have gotten a little more media attention than it did. It's one of those weird stories that seems like it should have been front page news everywhere, but was mostly just reported on Yahoo Sports and whatnot. Oh, and you're not going to believe this, but I could not find any sources at all that back up the assertion that every drug dealer kills 500 people on average. Apparently, in later speeches, he has since altered that to 50 people, but still with no real supporting evidence. And Trump still isn't done saying truly outlandish things about crime in this country. For the next six or seven minutes of the speech, he talks about how trash it was that he couldn't just send the National Guard into whatever city he chose to during the George Floyd protests without waiting for all these woke governors to give him permission first. Instead of subjecting you to this entire stretch of the speech, I cobbled together a few of his choice quotes from this section to summarize the point of it all. Here goes. If the radical Democrat politicians at the state local levels refuse to protect public safety and instead turns criminals loose to prey upon the innocent, then the federal government will have no choice but to step in, not wait for the governors anymore. The safety of law-abiding Americans cannot be violated by weak mayors and cowardly governors or people that just don't know what they're doing. And where there is a true and total breakdown of law and order, where citizens' most basic rights have been violated, then the federal government can and should send the National Guard to restore order and secure the peace without having to wait for the approval of some governor that thinks it's politically incorrect to call him in. It's time to go a different direction. And only one option remains. The next president needs to send the National Guard to the most dangerous neighborhoods in Chicago until safety can be successfully restored, which can happen very, very quickly. Send the National Guard to Chicago. That's a pretty wild suggestion, right? And another one that didn't generate a lot of media attention. But some of that could have to do with the fact that he's been floating ideas similar to these since he was first campaigning back in 2015. The difference this time, as pointed out by Washington Post writer Philip Bump, is that now he's campaigning not just on doing those things, but also on eliminating the barriers that stopped him from doing those things when he was president the first time. 
So that's concerning. The next policy matter that Trump bears his authoritarian teeth over is homelessness. He starts by railing against a program that is forcing luxury hotels, some of the finest in the world, to give up their empty rooms to the unhoused. And now, rich people don't even want to stay there, forcing them to instead, I don't know, sleep on the streets? That'd be fucking fine with me. What he's almost certainly referring to here is a California program called Project Room Key. Important detail that he's not mentioning, it was a COVID program that has since ended. You see, California has an especially bad problem when it comes to making sure our residents have adequate housing. And one of the cornerstones of stopping the spread of COVID was making sure people isolated for a while. That's really hard to do if the only place you have to go is a tent encampment in Silver Lake. So, in California, a program was put in place that sheltered homeless people in motel and hotel rooms instead of jamming everyone into a single shelter to catch the Rona from each other. And again, that program has since ended because, you know, COVID's over, apparently. It's time to start worrying about monkeypox, am I right? And speaking of rich people being inconvenienced by the poverty of others, Trump's next rant is about diplomats and world leaders coming to D.C. and seeing all these homeless encampments in the parks and on the streets. Why would world leaders want to come to D.C.? with all these poor people around. I'm not exaggerating. That is essentially the talking point here. Then shit gets especially crazy when he talks about how to fix it. Here goes. Perhaps some people will not like hearing this, but the only way you're going to remove the hundreds of thousands of people, and maybe throughout our nation, millions of people we're talking about, and help make our cities clean, safe, and beautiful again, is to open up large parcels of inexpensive land in the outer reaches of the cities, bring medical professionals, including doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists, drug rehab specialists, build permanent bathrooms and other facilities, make them good, make them hard, but build them fast, and create Thousands and thousands of high-quality tents, which can be done in one day, one day. And you have to move people out. Now, some people say, oh, that's so horrible. No, what's horrible is what's happening now. Because now they're in tents, but most of them aren't even tents that function. But we have to do it, because you can put up a tent in one day. It would be two years, three years, long time if you're going to build housing that would take care of the kind of numbers that we're talking We're talking about hundreds of thousands and probably millions of people. It will be the ambition of these people and all of us to get their life back on track, leave the tent city, and be back into the mainstream of society, which is where they want to be. It's a great thing. Now, it should come as no surprise that, apparently, that idea was not part of the written speech. That was some classic Trump riffing. That's according to Time Magazine, anyway. But also, doesn't that seem like a plan that at least some thought has gone into already? Which suggests it's been floated to Trump by someone at some point. It's always alarming when someone as Nazi-adjacent as Trump starts talking about plans that involve camps. Which I guess sounds like I'm making a joke, but I'm not. It's especially troublesome in the context of homelessness, where even the liberalist of liberal strongholds 
right here in Los Angeles, recently voted to ban homeless encampments within 500 feet of any school or daycare. Being banished from coming anywhere near a school is the kind of punishment normally reserved for pedophiles and drug dealers, which puts the unhoused firmly in the same axis of evil with a group Trump just suggested should be executed in this very speech, which to me raises an obvious question. Let's listen to the last bit of that part about building tent cities again. It will be the ambition of these people and all of us to get their life back on track, leave the tent city, and be back into the mainstream of society, which is where they want to be. Okay, so what happens if a person does not rehabilitate themselves enough to rejoin society? Do they stay in the tent city forever? Are they allowed to come and go as they please, or are they confined to that tent city? Do they have to do anything in exchange for that free housing? Like work, maybe? Because we do have a word for camps where undesirables are jettisoned from society and forced to work in exchange for substandard living conditions that they aren't allowed to leave. There are several names for camps like that, actually, and not a single one of them is good. I'd bet anyone listening to this could name a few examples without putting too much concentration into it. Also, MSNBC writer Jahan Jones probably cracked the mystery as to why this idea seems already kind of fleshed out, even though Time Magazine said it was Trump riffing. It's because he stole the idea from his bigot friend, Joe Arpaio. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he's the tough-on-crime Arizona sheriff who made headlines when he set up a brutal tent-based jail in the blazing hot Arizona desert that was inexplicably allowed to exist from 1993 all the way to 2017. Arpaio himself called it a concentration camp once, but he said he was totally joking, so it's fine. He also once recorded the temperature inside one of those tents at 145 degrees. That was in 2011, at a point in the year when the temperature in Phoenix hit a high of 118 degrees. His tent jail was enough of a human rights crisis that Amnesty International called him out over. So it stands to reason that, because these right-wing fucks view being homeless as a crime, Joe Arpaio floated the idea of using his tent jail system to deal with homelessness back in 2020, which is almost certainly where Trump got the idea. Trump is buddy-buddy enough with Arpaio that when he was convicted on contempt charges for refusing a judge's order to not detain undocumented immigrants in 2017, Trump pardoned him. So yeah, Trump's concentration camp idea is really just the idea of another disgusting fascist. Go figure. Okay, so up next... You had to see it coming. Trump takes a moment to break off into some good old-fashioned American as apple pie transphobia. He makes sure to tie it all to people who commit sex trafficking crimes against children, and it's all gross enough that I'm not going to dignify it by playing a clip here, except for this one clip where he accidentally owns his entire audience. Shortly after another obvious riff about men playing women's sports and how his people didn't want him to bring it up. This happens. Sir, don't say that. It's very controversial. That's not written down anywhere. I just said, this might be a good time. So, he said, don't do it. And that gets the biggest hand of everything. Oh, it's crazy. It's crazy. And you know what? He's right. 
Not about all the transphobic stuff, obviously. He's just right that in a speech that covers the entire spectrum of right-wing concerns and fears, the part that gets the biggest response is when he takes a no-holds-barred stance on the purity of women's sports. Fucking clowns. Of course, a good long chunk of this speech is dedicated to border security and immigration. It includes a lengthy section where he brags about threatening the Mexican president into sending 28,000 troops to the border to keep immigrants from entering the United States, which is a thing that did sort of happen. He also brings up that he campaigned on securing the borders in 2016 and he won, then says he did such a good job of shutting down the borders that he couldn't even talk about it during the 2020 campaign, but then he stops just short of saying that's why he lost. But I guarantee that's where that tangent was heading. This bitch knows he lost. Anyway, this part of the speech is mostly building up to something called Kate's Law. Let's have a listen. Furthermore, we should significantly increase jail time for repeat immigration violators to make clear that if you flout our immigration laws, you are looking at very hard time and substantial time. This used to be called Kate's Law. Do you remember that? Named after Kate Steinle, who was an incredible, beautiful young woman who was gunned down in San Francisco while standing with her father on a pier. Do you remember that? How can you forget it? In the prime of her life by an illegal alien with five prior deportations. He just kept coming back in, kept coming back in, and he shot her, standing with her father. Daddy, daddy, something happened. That was her last words. What a horrible story that was. So we went to get Kate's law passed. I didn't, but I know a lot of people were working very hard on it, and I believe that the radical left Democrats just wouldn't hear about it. They wouldn't do anything about it. It's hard to believe. But we have to get a law, Kevin, that's even tougher than Kate's law, and I think everyone's going to go for it now. Okay, so there are all sorts of reasons why Kate's law did not become a thing. And a lot of them have to do with the story not being at all what conservatives make it out to be. For starters, even if this really was a story of a violent criminal repeatedly entering the country until he finally brutally murdered a woman in broad daylight in front of her father and onlookers at the San Francisco Pier, it would still just be a huge anomaly when it comes to undocumented immigrants and crime. They, as a group, are generally half as likely to commit serious crimes like this compared to other groups in the United States. Also, the killer in question, Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, wasn't in the country because of lax border security. He was actually apprehended every time he tried to cross the border from 1997 to 2015. He only ended up in San Francisco because the Justice Department ignored an ICE request to let them take custody of him, and the San Francisco Sheriff's Department couldn't detain him because he had no history of violence. None of this has anything to do with securing the border. That part worked fine in this case, and the changes suggested in Kate's law wouldn't have had any impact on what happened to Kate whatsoever. Also, the name Kate's Law would imply some involvement on the part of the victim's family. But nope. In an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle, Kate's father, Jim Steinle, 
said he would support Kate's Law if it was a thing that legitimately saved lives, but that he didn't want his daughter's name in the middle of a political debate, and that he and his family weren't necessarily against the idea of sanctuary cities. And before you go suggesting that Jim Steinle has been cuckolded by the extreme left, it's worth noting that Lopez Sanchez was actually acquitted of murder in this case. And why? Because it wasn't murder. He didn't walk up to Kate Steinle and shoot her in the head. Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez was sitting on a bench on the San Francisco pier and found something wrapped in cloth underneath that bench. Turns out it was a gun that had been recently stolen from a park ranger's car. And very tragically, when Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez picked up that gun, it went off. Initially, the bullet struck the concrete in front of him and then ricocheted into Kate Steinle's back, approximately 90 feet away. If almost anyone else picked up that gun, this would have just been a very sad story about a woman who died suddenly due to a tragic accident. But because it was Juan Francisco Lopez Sanchez, it still to this day is treated by right-wingers as proof positive that something must be done to stop Democrats from letting illegal immigrants murder our women. It is propaganda of the highest and most disgusting kind. So now let's listen to one last clip from this speech. To drain the swamp and root out the deep state, we need to make it much easier to fire rogue bureaucrats who are deliberately undermining democracy, or at a minimum, just want to keep their jobs. They want to hold on to their jobs. Congress should pass historic reforms empowering the president to ensure that any bureaucrat who is corrupt, incompetent, or unnecessary for the job can be told, did you ever hear this? You're fired. Get out. You're fired. Have to do it. Deep state. He put a lot of reality game show hosts stink on it, and that coupled with the deep state tag at the very end makes this part just seem silly and confusing if you don't know what he's talking about. But rest assured, it's bad. Axios has done some extensive reporting on this, and I'll link to it in the show notes. What he's getting at here is something called Schedule F. That was the name of an executive order Trump issued in 2020, just a few days before the election. It basically establishes a new employment category for what could be up to 50,000 current government employees. Once reassigned as Schedule F employees, they would lose their current job protections, which involve a lengthy appeals process before they can be fired. Trump wants to do away with that appeals process and grant himself the authority to fire anyone among this group who he deems not loyal enough to his America First agenda. Biden rescinded the Schedule F order when he took office, but that just barely matters because it's not like he was planning to use it, not yet anyway, and Trump can always just reinstate it if he takes power again. And it's expected that he'll do exactly that and then set about gutting the civil service, or as he calls it, draining the swamp. Once that happens... Will the next Democrat who wins the presidency just drain the swamp again and fill it with their own monsters? Yeah, probably, assuming we keep having elections after a second Trump presidency. But for now, it's just a thing Trump is planning on doing if he takes office again. According to the Axios articles, a whole host of conservative groups and personalities have set about compiling lists of pro-Trump candidates 
to fill positions that will be left vacant by these mass firings. These jobs would run the gamut from boring government agency desk jobs all the way through to intelligence and military positions. His top priority is said to be to clean house in the intelligence community and the State Department, remove those woke generals at the Defense Department, who he brings up in this part of the speech, and strip the highest level officials at the Justice Department and FBI. Which would all be great if not for the fact that he just wants to replace those fascists with even fashier fascists. At the end of explaining all of this, Trump promises that Washington will be an entirely different place. And he's not lying. The Axios articles about this are extremely long and extremely detailed and just absolutely horrifying. And I encourage everyone to read it. If Trump somehow regains the presidency in 2024, it very much seems like his plan is to remake the government into one that would be absolutely fine with him and his offspring ruling until the end of time, which I'm guessing will be somewhere around 2027. Anyway, there's a lot more to this speech, but it mostly revolves around the typical Democrats are bad and stopping people of color from voting is good kind of rhetoric that we've come to expect from Trump. There's nothing else that's quite as shocking as executing drug dealers or gutting the civil service the rest of the way. But in general, I think this America First Policy Institute speech is a pretty chilling glimpse into what the country under a second Trump presidency will look like. So give it a watch if you want. And hey, here's hoping this absolute tyrant doesn't win in 2024. As for this episode, I think we've made it to the end. I mean, I don't think we've made it to the end. I know we have. And I don't know who you think you're talking about when you say we. This was all me today, baby. And you. Thank you for listening. I very much appreciate it. We will be back to having co-hosts and guests next week. In the meantime, please recall, we're doing a live Unpops on August 28th at Caveat in New York City. 4 p.m. start time. Spend your evening with us and your night on the town. Tickets are available at unpops.co slash NYC or caveat.nyc. And hey, that's it. Let's get out of here. Adam, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. Street.